0: We use children's stories to instruct. After all, you want our kids to do the right things on their paths to happily ever after. But the truth is, what the right thing is, is not always clear. We have the trickster tale to thank for this lesson. The trickster, whose morality lives explicitly in the muddy middle, makes us question whether sometimes two wrongs do, in fact, make a right. Today on Little Voices, Big Ideas, we'll take on the trickster through the lens of Anansi and the moss-covered rock. I'm Sarah DeBocker. Let's go beyond the bedtime story. Tell me again, how
1: the people tell their stories, and who did
2: what, and where and when, uh-huh, hmm.
0: I am joined again today, as always, by Helen Taylor. Hello. Tom Mortenberg. Hi there. And Freddie Evans. Hi. And we're going to be talking about the book Anansi and the Moss-Covered Rock. Helen, can you give us a little bit of background about this book? So Anansi and
3: the Moss-Covered Rock, retold by Eric Kimmel, is a version of a a story from West Africa. The Anansi stories, Anansi the spider, is a character from West Africa, mostly the Ashanti peoples. And of course, these are among the stories, including similar stories about a rabbit, known to us as spray rabbit, which were brought across to the Caribbean by the peoples who were enslaved during the 18th and 19th century. In this version of the story, Anansi is, as usual, a trickster. And he plays his trick on a series of the animals who live near the forest. And he takes them one by one for a walk. And each time he performs a trick with a magic moss covered rock, which allows him to then go back and steal all their food. And you get the sense from this story that Anansi is not hungry. He's not really interested in the yams and the bananas and the coconuts he's interested in playing tricks. And it's clear in this in the illustrations, that little bush deer, another small character is watching everything that Anansi does. And she uses the same magic of the moss-covered rock to trick Anansi himself. So she has out-tricked the trickster. And at the end of the story, we're told that of course they forgive Anansi and he will go on to trick them another day, because that is the function of Anansi the Spider. He is the trickster figure, like Br'er Rabbit, like Cocopelli in the Native American tradition, like our own Bugs Bunny, and even the figure of Jack Sparrow in Pirates of the Caribbean films. Um, And so one of the issues that these trickster stories present is what kind of justice system allows a figure to continually deceive us and be forgiven. And in Hmm. this story in particular, Little Bush Deer uses the same kind of tricking to out-trick the trickster. Is that necessarily fair? What do you think, Tom Wartenberg?
4: Well, I think that's a great question because when we read the book, we have a sort of ambivalent reaction to Anansi. He is tricking the other animals in the forest. And even as we're sort of aware that that's not something that we necessarily approve of. We're also sort of enjoying the cleverness of the trickster. And I think that's why the trickster is such an interesting character, because you have this sort of doubleness in your reaction to him. Uh, Helen, you mentioned that both the characters of Anansi and little bush are small. There's an underdog element, too. Um, and then when little bush comes around and basically hoists Anansi by his own petards, there's a way in which it reminds us of a sort of poetic justice, right? But it raises really interesting questions, I think that can lead to a really great discussion with children and actually probably their parents too, who may not have thought about this, of whether this morality of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, which is you know Old Testament morality, is that still valid? Would we still endorse it?
2: Freddie, you have um, something to say on this. <laughs> The, the idea of poetic justice, there's another saying, what goes around comes around. And little bush deer definitely dealt that to Anansi and that he played the same trick on him that Anansi had played on the other animals. And as you mentioned, Tom, it didn't work. Mm-hmm. I would like to know from participants with whom I uh, discussed this book, what they think would have happened if bush deer had been up front with Anansi, when he first saw him playing those tricks, the very first time, what would have happened if he had gone to the animals and say, look, Anansi is up to no good. He's playing tricks again. This is what he's doing. And we need to stop him. So sometimes this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth does not work. And in this case, it didn't. Should we then just employ just being upfront, being frank and being uh, direct with people? What difference would that make?
3: the trick is something that we enjoy. I mean, every culture seems to have a trickster figure. So I wonder, I mean, you're right, Freddie, of course, an eye for an eye doesn't get us anywhere. But then why keep going back to this pleasure in watching people be tricked? I mean, what's the cultural function of that? There must be one. I think partly you have these underdog characters
4: who are doing the tricking. And so I think part of the reason that this idea of the trickster has such ongoing appeal is that the tricksters tend to choose powerful, important, sometimes puffed up people as the targets for their tricks. If a Nazi was doing this to sort of vulnerable creatures in the forest who needed their banana to survive, I think we'd have a very different attitude. You know these are big, powerful figures. They have more than they need. And so we can take pleasure in them getting shown up by mm-hmm. the sort of weak little spider because they're so powerful.
3: So what you're saying is when it's a Robin Hood kind of figure who's tricking the powerful in order to benefit others, it has a sort of retributive justice as opposed to this story where Anansi is not tricking the powerful to benefit others. He's tricking the powerful to benefit himself.
4: Yeah, and I actually think a lot of the, in literature, we've talked about the trickster in stories and kids' books and in the oral tradition, but there's a lot of high literature which also features tricksters. You know, when you look at some of those instances in the literature, we're very ambivalent about what goes on. It's, we're not automatically on the side of the tricksters. We think sometimes they may have gone too far. You know, there's also the story of Tom Sawyer and his white fence that he's got to paint and how he basically cons all these other people into doing his work for him and paying him (laughs) to get a chance to paint the fence. Again, I think we take a lot of pleasure in it because we sort of feel like we enjoy the cleverness with which Tom Sawyer in this case uh, is able to trick people. And if I can say one more thing, uh, that's gonna get get me into even more trouble Um, Nietzsche actually thinks the origin of morality was basically a trick that the sort of clever people in ancient Greece or the ancient Hebrews were able to get people to buy morality by basically paying a trick on them, getting them to think it was in their interest to be moral when in fact it wasn't. So, I mean, if you take someone like Nietzsche seriously, you can see that this whole notion of a trick can be very... Powerful also as a sort of investigative tool that helps us sort of think about
2: our culture and how it works. Yeah, I agree, Tom. In addition to the pleasure that we get out of it and the entertainment, I think is that we learn. We become wiser because we see these tricks and we also become wiser to what could happen to us or the tricks that could be played upon us. So I think that's another reason. And I heard Leah talk about that in her comment. Which we will hear very soon is that we keep telling these stories and we keep reading them generation after generation now centuries, knowing that they're not true, you know, knowing that the characters are not always up front and using high morals, but we use them because of the lessons that they impart, as well as the entertainment.
0: Absolutely. Well, let's hear from Leah, who um, is going to be joined by her father Thomas.
1: So a good trickster is someone like Robin Hood, and a bad trickster is someone like... Anansi. Anansi. Um, what's the difference between the, the two tricks that they play?
5: Well, Robin Hood's tricks are good because they give people money when they're poor. And they don't have any money, like none money.
1: And what about Anansi's tricks?
5: They're just for fun for him, and they make other people sad. So it's not good. That's why I think they're bad tricks.
1: At the end of the story, it says that Anansi didn't learn a lesson whatsoever and that he's still playing tricks on people to this day.
5: I still want to read Anansi books. Why? Because I like them. I like learning things. And they give you information about what's a good trick and what's a bad trick.
0: Oh, shout out to Leah, who is all of five years old. (laughs) There may not be a better demonstration of big ideas coming from a little kid. Um, Really beautiful. What intrigues me about this conversation, this exchange, is really this notion that she's thinking about um, like a good trick versus a bad trick and and the role of intention. What
2: what did y'all hear there? I heard the definition of a folktale that we know that they're not true and they're bad characters, they're good characters, but they serve a purpose, several purposes. One, entertainment, and secondly, a lesson. We learn something from them. Mm. And I think we do.
4: I mean, I think we learn, you know, when we're, young children can sort of see the sort of complex intentions that someone like a Nazi has, right? That it's not simple. We learn to be aware that there are people who do things like this and that we have to be somewhat careful.
2: And
3: isn't that the function of storytelling? And we know that, of course, the oral tradition has existed for millennia before the printing press and then the handheld device made us forget all our capacity for memorising stories. The oral tradition was used to celebrate heroes, to warn against enemies and so forth. I mean, think of something as simple as the boy who cried wolf and the way we use that even today, or at least I did with my daughter, you know, of a warning Um, not to keep tricking people, otherwise they won't believe you when there really is a problem. So, yes, I think this story really encapsulates so many of those important ideas that we talk about when we talk with children about stories.
0: I can hear parents thinking, like, why is it that I wanted to share a book about tricksters and, you know is that not endorsing a behavior that I would like to discourage? So let's talk a little bit about putting this book in the hands of families and why talk about this with kids.
4: Freddie's pointed out that it gives us a more complex understanding of human psychology. So you can see it as a sort of aid in having kids become more aware of the possibilities of themselves being tricked by other people and giving them some sort of tools For dealing with that, Mm. I don't think we should always give kids uh, books that fit with norms that we have about what we'd like them to be. We we want them to explore all sorts of different things, and I think it's very important for them to see very problematic moral behavior. I mean, we don't, you know, Mm. they're young, so we don't want them to see some of the things that we may like watching on TV. I don't know if you guys like The Sopranos, but, you know, we're watching a mobster and getting a great deal of pleasure uh, <laughs> watching somebody who kills people for a living.
3: Right. That's the essence of critical thinking, though, isn't it, Tom? I mean, showing, giving children a book where the child, him or herself, has to determine and figure out the different codes of behavior without having cardboard cutout, you know, villains and heroes and so forth. I think it's in the muddy middle that children learn critical thinking because Mm -hmm. there's not a clear answer for them. They have to figure it out for themselves.
2: In addition to the critical thinking piece, which is so important, there are so many other things that can explore character. And one of them is happiness. For instance, in this book, Anansi was always happy when he tricked someone. He was happy to get something for nothing, which is basically what happened. So I like to explore what makes people happy and how can we become happy when we work for things or when we earn things by making them or creating them or discovering them on our own rather than hurting someone else in the meantime. But I think that's a
4: really interesting question that it poses like, if you're aiming for your own happiness, is it okay to do anything and not worry about what happens to other people? If it gives you pleasure, is it okay? And obviously I think most of us would say no. You know, you could ask about Anansi and what he does and says, look, he gets, he gets really happy when he tricks people and, you know, they get knocked out and then he gets to take their fruit. Um, and so I think it's a great way to get kids to think about right and wrong in a more complicated way. It's complexity and it's difficulty would make it interesting and useful for kids, particularly to have discussions so that they have to process it with either their peers or with their caretakers and somehow really reflect upon what they see going on in the story.
0: I'm thinking about the theme of forgiveness here, too, and the opportunity that's here. We've talked a lot about open-ended questions, right, and how to open up the conversation with a question. But I think another really powerful approach to sharing this book with a child is to have the parent or, or the, the grown-up share a time when maybe they engaged in um, trickery, purposeful trickery. Or maybe felt that they went about attempting to acquire happiness through means that uh, were perhaps a little dubious. I think it can be incredibly humanizing for a child to hear those stories of personal experience and maybe even um, you know tinged with a little bit of regret so that they come to understand that their parent was once a child too.
4: I think the notion of forgiveness is a very interesting one to talk about. I mean, we we haven't focused on that because it's just one little part of the story, but forgiveness is really difficult when you've been hurt. Mm. So if you're really upset and hurt and angry, and then you sort of think, oh, really, I have to forgive people for doing things. What's it take to be able to forgive someone when they've really hurt you? I think that's really interesting, and I'm sure kids are thinking about that a lot.
0: Well, and in fact, Leah was thinking about this. Let's here, again, from Leah and Thomas.
1: So let's pretend that Maya, your best friend, played a trick on you the way Anansi played a trick on the other animals. creatures in the jungle, right, the animals. How would you react to a trick like that?
5: I wouldn't play with her for like a month. And then I was like, wait, I think she just made an accident. And then I would still play with her.
1: That's good. So you'd forgive her after a little bit of time, huh? So what do you think it took for the animals to forgive Anansi?
5: Um, I would say, well, say I'm sorry. I will never play a trick on you again, and then that's all it would take for me. You could also wash the dishes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh my goodness! I want some of what Leah's having. Start. She's so sharp. And gosh, if I could just, yeah, you know, just give me a month. If you could just give me a month, I'll forgive you. (laughs) It's wonderful. But here we have a five-year-old thinking through some complex
3: ideas about justice and fairness and retributive justice, and what yeah. Dante in the Inferno calls contrapasso, you know, the punishment fitting the crime and so forth. I mean, this is the power of these stories mm-hmm. that with our five year olds, we can examine this whole series of complex and nuanced notions so, so wonderfully.
0: Absolutely. And when words fail us, we'll get up and do the dishes.
3: <laughs> well, they've always got to be done. Right. <laughs>
0: Oh, well, this has just really been a wonderful conversation. Uh, I'm, of course, ever grateful to the three of you for um, joining us. Thank you, Helen, Freddie, and Tom. Uh, and, of course, thank you to Leah and her father, who I'm going to give a shout out to because he just so happens to be the producer of this podcast, Thomas Walsh. <laughs> That is it for this edition of Little Voices, Big Ideas. I'm your host, Sarah DeBacher. Little Voices, Big Ideas is funded by a grant from the National Endowment for the Humanities to Primetime Family, Inc., a project of the Louisiana Endowment for the Humanities. The podcast is produced in partnership with WWNO New Orleans.